But the bad news is the copy machine wasn't working. So I can't give you an outline. You're just going to have to go on your own. So whatever you need to grab, go ahead and grab it. That was some pretty minor tools. I think I witnessed um, McMurray fix it earlier. Oh, yeah? Copy script. Yeah. Copy. So none of us have favor? Well, seeing as how I didn't have a we'll just have to rely on you guys for now. Settled. Good to go. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna pray, and then we'll begin. All right. Let me pray for us. Lord, today especially, we encounter a philosophy that is peculiar, uh, stimulating, extraordinary in its explanations of what we're doing as humans. And Lord, it is very enticing for us to collapse into some of the implicit nihilisms of of this particular philosopher. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us <clears throat> not caution against nihilism because it has no purchase on us. Death has no control. This is the testimony of the resurrection, Lord. So I pray that we can gaze upon this with the kind of light that Augustine describes, that there is no dark place which will seize us. So let us do so with humility and tenderness, not being uh, overly captivated and not being cautious so as to fear that we will be taken captive. Lord, help us to discern and to think clearly today. In the name of Christ, our King, we pray. Amen. All right, every now and again, a philosopher comes along and says something so novel, so interesting, that I think it's kind of like the guy in the video said about Heidegger. I've never thought of that before. And in my estimation, Lacan does the same thing. Foucault, Lacan... Saucer, I guess to some degree, Derrida, all of these guys are really unique um, over and against the rest of philosophical history, the way they interpret it. It's not to say it's new, it's just this interesting spin. And what you're going to see in Lacan today is a variety of influences. You're going to see Hegel, you're going to see, um, i got a chair right there, you're going to see Hegel's philosophy, you're going to see some Nietzschean stuff, and you're going to see a big uh, influence by Sigmund Freud. And so first of all, what I want to do is I want to talk about Freud. Some ideas there. Jacques Lacan is French, obviously, uh, into linguistics, sociology, and so forth, but was really enamored by the work of Freud in the area of psychology. So the first issue we want to discuss is the influence of Freud on Lacan. Before I get too deeply into what Freud is describing. Remember the structuralist idea. The structuralist approach to philosophy was, or is at this point, is that there's an undergirding layer of relations to all things. That was Saussure's idea to language. That was Levi-Strauss's idea to culture, that there's underlying structure of myths and cultural systems. Now, Freud is going to suggest there's an underlying layer to the human psyche which he's going to call the unconscious. Okay? 
then Lacan is going to build on Freud's idea and say there's an under that the unconscious layer down here is structured like a language. So he's going to take Freud's idea of the self trying to sort of find the self, and he's going to say that happens through words. And it's a very interesting approach. Now, one thing that to say about Freud is everybody knows this, it's extremely sexual. Freud takes sexuality to be one of the primary motifs to explain how man is longing for his own significance. <laughs> so in any of the sexual metaphors that I use in here, that's why I asked Mr. Mayfield to come so he could call me down. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> I brought him in here just because I'm always telling him I want him to come to the class, and so he graciously came. Um, <clears throat> is that in any of these sexualized metaphors, you have to understand this is not about, you know, uh, MTV. It's not about any of those sorts of things. It's about some underlying structure that's beneath that. All right, so let's consider Freud. Freud's claim is largely grounded in the view that there's a sort of psychic energy. What Freud is going to say is that the unconscious down here sort of makes itself known. And if you realize what's going on at Freud's time in the area of physics is this idea that energy is sort of in its little compartment or whatever field of, of inquiry you're looking at. Energy can't be destroyed or added to. Like there's a limited, it, it is what it is, right? And so the idea is that in this area or this field of inquiry that the energy takes on different forms or uses but it doesn't disappear or come into being. It simply is there. It's just used differently. Freud is going to take that same idea and say that's kind of what the unconscious is, kind of a psychic energy. That man has this unconscious state to him, and that is not coming into being or out of being. It is simply there, and it sort of emerges into the conscious self. Is this making sense to you guys? Okay. So Freud would say, first of all, and I'm just going to kind of give you some glimpse of Freudian ideas is that there's sort of a, a psychic energy that manifests that is a sort of manifestation of unconsciousness. Okay? Now remember, with Saucer, the long or the underlying language was more real than the parole or the things that we see, right? What's more real than Matthew's word cat or dog or Mr. Mayfield is the system of relations that's not seen. Does that make sense? That's the more real thing. Same for Freud. The more real thing is the unconscious. Now, let's talk about this unconscious. Let me just put it up here. Freud is going to put forth this idea that there's an unconscious realm. I'll give it a whole bullet point here because I'm going to write some things under. Basically, let me see if I can, I'm going to try to minimize this so I can get as far as I can. You've, you've heard this idea of the unconscious as an iceberg. Have you ever heard this analogy? Right. The idea here is just like with water, what we see or the conscious element that surfaces above the water is quite a bit more minimal than the, the full range of the iceberg beneath it or the body of the ice beneath it. So Freud's going to posit this idea that what's most important is the thing that's underneath. I don't want to talk forever about Freud, but just so you get an idea where Lacan is, is going with this. 
So it's akin to an iceberg, a bulk of it lying below the surface. And it exerts a dynamic, determining influence upon the part which is amenable to direct inspection, the conscious mind. So the unconscious is the dynamic cause, if you will, of consciousness, or the conscious, not consciousness, just that. Alright, so the most real thing is the thing that's the least visible, because we can inspect and it's up here, but the goal of the inspection up here is to understand this unseen realm, this sort of subterranean reality. And he says, and this is sort of like a long, by the way, right, that the unconscious has, uh, is this myriad of possibilities. It's a sort of myriad of energetic possibilities. So you can kind of hear Saucer in this, and the idea that the unconscious is not a thing. It's not, it can't be seen, it can't be seen in the sense that it can't be identified. This is what the unconscious is in a denotative sense or predicative sense. Like saying Mr. Mayfield is in the room. You can't say the unconscious is blank. Because that's consciousness. You guys see the kind of Heideggerian idea here, being coming into being and so forth. Okay, good. Um, all right, so they're trying to, what's going to happen is the unconscious seeks representation. The, the subterranean aspects wants to have representation above the surface. What's happening in the human life or in civilization altogether is the unconscious trying to sort of manifest itself through symbolic representation and actions and so on and so on and so on. Lacan is going to take the same idea and basically say, say the way the unconscious surfaces is through words. And uh, Freud, just as another side note, says there are two instincts of the unconscious. There's the eros, the passion, the longing, the desire, to know, to do, to be, and then I think it's thanatos, which is, this is, you might want to call it the love, desire, and the thanatos is the death drive, to kill, destroy, devour. Alright, so let me make sure you get the picture. This sub this unconscious subterranean reality is a psychic energy sort of longing to make itself known. And the only way it can do that is that if it shows itself to itself, kind of like being in Heidegger. And so if it can pop up and represent itself, this is a good thing. That's desire. But at the same time, when that unconscious objectifies itself, guess what? It hates it. So it tries to destroy it. Because it is not it. Does that make sense? So there's this constant sort of problem of wanting to represent oneself, wanting to signify, wanting to objectify. But in that object, there's a lack of pure representation of what I am. So this desire to destroy it because it cannot fully embrace the unconscious. So it's almost like a sort of a, a bipolar or, or a schizophrenia of sorts. Is this making sense? Mm -hmm. 
Okay? That's the idea. So what Lacan does is Lacan reads this and says, Freud has got some things profoundly right. He attaches Hegel to this. He takes Hegel and he takes Freud and he takes Saussure in language and puts them all together. And basically Lacan's project is the unconscious tries to find well, it, it tries to find itself by looking for the other. In order for me to be a me, there must be an other to distinguish myself against. A structural relation. So I'm constantly looking for the other. And the way I do that is by words, which are an attempt to make the other visible to me. Then, if that happens, all of a sudden, I become a self but the problem is, I'm no longer a self, but now I see myself as an object through the vehicle I needed to see myself. And you hate yourself because it's not a true representation of yourself. Right. Now I hate the fact that I've been objectified. Exactly. So the self, in order to find it, has to establish language or uses language to objectify the other, but then I become an other. That's the only way I can know myself, but I hate the fact that I am an other because I'm looking for me. Does that make sense? So it's a sort of schizophrenic agony. And what Lacan wants to say is, that's okay. Let desire be that way. The problem comes when we, we sublate or put that desire down or diffuse it by ignoring it and, and just saying we are what we are because we're part of some sort of metaphysical schema. Well, Heidegger called the fallenness of being, Right? or the forgetfulness of being. So when we forget that we're in this process of relentless desire, of search, of longing, when we forget that, and we just let ourselves be held in some stricture of a metaphysical condition, that we've sort of suppressed that desire. And guess what suppression of that desire does? It leads to linguistic problems. Because the ultimate goal is, is for that language to show us that we're looking for the otherness that we'll never find. Because at the core of the unconscious is a lack. A nothing. A something, a forgotten object that can never be found. That was never had. That that's exactly what the unconscious is doing for Lacan. I'm going to paint this out in outline form, but do you guys get the general picture? Okay? Alright. So, here's what he says. He basically says, all right, Freud, let me, let me put another uh, note here. Comments so far. I like it. Drew likes it. Drew likes it. I'm not going to argue with it. All I'm doing is, is, is uh, stretching my neck. That's true. Let him defend himself. Let, it, let him like it. But I, I do. It does rock the world so far. All right. In, in the unconscious... There is lack, absence. Now, this is nothing new, right? Because Heidegger had said basically presence is absence, the longing for the thing that is not there, ultimately death. As you can see, Mr. Mayfield, this is why this is defense against the dark arts, all about death and emptiness. That's why my high schoolers are so corrupt. Um, the un in the unconscious, there is a lack, an emptiness, a longing. And he says that, this is great, that 
the unconscious is it is disruptive. It is looking for this lack. Now, let's take language for example. Isaac says that is cat. Objectification. Boom. That's what it is. But the unconscious recognizes that there is, symbolically speaking, almost like infinite gaps in between those letters and sounds. Infinite gaps between the sign and the, signify, and the signified. There's so much space there. We never really get to the full presence of what cat is. Oh, so we can never fully explain something through words? Right. So words are always indicating the thing that's not there. Yes, that's right. So the words always represent a gap, or a lack, or an interval, or an absence. An absence. And in fact, it's precisely that that the unconscious wants to happen. The unconscious disrupts. It wants to show show these gaps. But the irony is it must objectify to see the gaps. Does that make sense? How must it objectify? It needs to objectify to see the gaps. Okay. You can hear how this is Hegelian. Right? It needs to negate itself. Um, or you can see also right here by the way, these two desires in Freud, you can see the influence of Nietzsche. Dionysian uh, power and, uh, or Dionysian power, I guess, to some degree, and Apollonian uh, power. So two sides of the same, the same issue. All right, questions, comments, thoughts so far? Okay, so what Lacan is doing, unconscious is looking for disruption. The unconscious, the unconscious doesn't want to be resolved. It doesn't want to be truly objectified. Rather, the unconscious moves by this lack, needs this lack. He says that unconscious is what necessarily disrupts conscious life in order to remain true to its disruptive effect. A difference conceivable as the gap between the subject and any object that provides an identity to it. Any space or gap in some sense belongs to the object. Identification is always imperfect. And this is what associates, uh, this is how the unconscious derives from this imperfection. So it wants to show these gaps and the imperfection of identity. It never fully sees itself. Now, I know you have to be thinking, wow, we've come a long way in philosophy from trying to figure out the ideals and virtues of Plato to talking about the unconscious lack of its desire for disruption. Which is weird. But, important thing here is to understand that philosophy has come to a point where it's so, tried so hard to find substance that it's gotten to a place of a sort of sophisticated nihilism that basically says emptiness is what propels meaning and existence. The nothing gives the something in these frames. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean this precludes that we can have a Christian interpretation of this, that we can kind of turn it and say, well, there may be some Christian aspects to it. 
just want you to see that's where we've come in the full scope of things, all the way to this very deep and complicated version. All right. So, okay. Let me see if I can put this together for you. This almost makes me smile, it's so odd. Okay. So here's what happens. Let's, let's take the example of the child. Lot, lots of, uh, of the child. He said what happens in the child is six months old or prior, the child doesn't know it isn't it. It doesn't know it's... It, it just... The world is radically immediate to it. Right? But it doesn't know it isn't it. Yeah. But it wants to. The unconscious wants that to happen. And it wants that to happen not so it will be identified so that the disruptive nature of the unconscious will unveil itself. The incompleteness of the identity. So six months or prior, the child is looking for unity. Is looking for unity of experience. Meaning, it's trying to make itself an it. A behind, before, and after, you know, this closure of my existence. I know my before, I know my after, all of a sudden I can kind of, yeah. this all sort of congeals into a, a now or But the baby, doesn't, the, the baby doesn't remember anything. It doesn't remember before and it can't take it. That, so that's, that's, e that's right. That's right. Keep going. So that's why it's not uh, like an it a moment. Because it's, it's just like, bam, 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 right now, right now, right now, instantly forgetting the past. Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. So what it does is instead of looking for it temporally, it looks for it spatially in others. I become an it because I identify you as not me. And that's what it's doing with its mother. That's why he would say the baby is mimicking, or he, the baby is astonished when you mimic back to it its same movements. The baby's doing this, and you start going... It loves that because all of a sudden it realizes it's an it because it's reflecting itself. Boom. It sees it. You made it it for it. You were the other it was looking for so it might be known. I'm going to do this to baby. It's so awesome. I'm making it realize that it's, that is, like, it's, I'm making you know that you're it. So this jubilation occurs at the mimicking I may have spelled that wrong. Mimicking and mirror stages. However, this is the sort of passionate jubilation and eros that Freud was describing. However, the baby turns on the death drive and hates the fact that it has been objectified. Now that it isn't it, it hates that. Because I can't fully be represented in the mirror. I can't fully be seen. But I needed to start the process of being seen, but I hate the fact that it happened. So the same image, this is from um, the encyclopedia, but the, and this is a good, the good set of lines, and I'll, I'll simplify this. The same image that provides, for this, provides the site for jubilation also becomes the object of what Lacan calls aggressivity. A proto-aggression directed at the object of identification. For Lacan, 
such aggressivity results from the alienation of that locus, the ego, where imaginary identification forms intentional unity. So let me see if I can put this together for you. All of the sudden, I am the baby or the child is alienated from its subjectivity because of its objectification. So, this is a disruptive reality. So, that's why it's a terrible twos. <laughs> Perhaps. I mean, you can see, though, some hints of Kierkegaard in this, almost, because okay, he's, he's trying to... He, you're trying to find your subjectivity, and that's what Kierkegaard is saying, but you constantly want your objectification, but at the same time you realize that that objectification isn't truly you. Yeah. So subjectively, you can't find your objectification. Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. And I think that you're onto something because we've talked about Zizek in here. He's a huge fan of Lacan, and he recognizes that too, that Kierkegaard and Lacan go together. That's, that's a great point, Matthew. It's a great point. So in Lacanian theory of the ego, it's always, it's an object. Ego can only appear as an object. It's emergence, etc. So in order for the me to appear, I, I have to negate my subjectivity, see myself in the face of the other, and then all of a sudden I hate the fact that that happened because now I'm an object and I'm now like a divided entity. No longer fully in myself, but almost detoured from the me. And the fact that I'm out here away from me is what is so painy and frustrating. But that detour, Lacan will ultimately say, is desire in the movement of language, and that's an okay thing. It never finds home. It's sort of an eternal excursus. That's all it is. Except for six months of prior. Except for, yeah, that's just a rough number, if you're right. Yeah, that's a rough number. It goes much deeper than that. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. Right. So he says, what does this all have to do? How, this is his reading of Freud. And then he resolves it. This is so brilliant. He resolves it in structuralism. So cool. Where do you come up with ideas like this? Like, how do you think of these? Yeah, this is the kind of thing you go, wow. I don't understand. Yeah. Some people go, oh, that's ridiculous. But I think if you're a student of philosophy, you see this compared to the other, other people and you think, this is really, really inventive. So it resolves in structuralism. This is cool. So um, the, the gap or tension in the signified and signifier represents this subject subject object impossible um, mapping. Okay, this is great. The distance between the signifier and the signified, 
that the signifier can never hold the signified together, for him represents perfectly exactly what he's describing, the problem of seeing myself, the I and the other. Do you see that connection? That the I cannot find the I unless it's objectified as an I through the face of another object, thus objectifying myself, is the same problem of the signifier in language never being able to get to the concept it's trying to find. Because the signification is constantly happening and trying to get to it, trying to get to it, trying to get to it, trying to get to it. And its journey is propelled by something it can never get to. Does that make sense? The journey of signification is trying to find the presence of a concept. Like think about trying to describe love. And I just expound over and over and over and try to come up with different phrases, synonyms and so forth, and the signification keeps going and going. And then I give examples and I demonstrate and I draw a picture and a painting, but I can never grab it. I can never get to love. I'm never there. And so I'm, the signification is constantly moving toward the signified that constantly eludes it. The same way me seeing me never gets there. Genius. Never gets there. I never find me. But that's what I'm trying to do. And the goal for Lacan of psychoanalysis is just to expose that desire and free it. Let it loose. Let it go. Really interesting. So... <clears throat> well, I mean, go ahead. Do we ever truly like your love example? Then, do we ever truly grasp love? Do we ever know what it is? If we can't truly explain it, no. All we know is the travel towards it or away from it, rather. Existence is a fissure for these guys. What is is a constant brokenness, a constant brokenness, a constant slipping away. Never never getting to what it wants. Alright. So there is an absence in every presence. There's an absence in every presence. The idea can only be present through what it represents, but it is not. signification is trying to do is show you the idea. But the irony is, the idea can only be present in a signification that never shows what it truly is. The idea would never even be possible to us as an object to be attained if we didn't at all try to objectify it in, in words. Does that make sense? Hmm. Say that again. The idea would never be present to us at all. It would never be traveling. We would never have we would never be able to chase after it if we didn't start if we didn't start with the moment of objectifying it in language. The, even though the objectification process is something that we hate, it's a necessary process. 
It's a necessary process that leads us towards the thing we cannot find. That's how things work. So it must happen in order to find the thing that's not there. Okay? Now, I want you to understand that this is, you, this is very close to the Augustinian notion that we discussed in rhetoric in that signs are never to be understood in themselves. But they point to the ineffable. You remember me reading that statement in class. How does the ineffable become spoken of? Because the moment the ineffable becomes spoken of, it is no longer ineffable. So the sign must sort of constantly bleed beyond itself. So there are some of these ideas still implicit in, in St. Augustine and in other thinkers. Things that we should consider carefully when reading those figures. Alright. Language is a representation that always represents the necessity of alienation. Language is a necessary representing alienation. You know, 12th century and 13th century, 14th century monks had this figured out and realized they should just not say anything at all. Language is representation. It's a necessary alienation. Well, okay. go ahead. I was just wondering how he can communicate his idea. Well, there's no, yeah. He can't truly communicate his idea, can he? Yeah, there's no idea, there's no idea per se. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Derrida will recognize that more than anyone. Because actually I think that when he does, when Derrida writes, he like intentionally misspells things or writes in big letters or small letters or large spaces between words and things like that so that it he recognizes that his system eats his system. Is Lacan still alive? Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't think so. I think he died in the 90s. I'm not, I'm not sure off the top of my head. That's a good question. Does that say, does that cartoon reading say he died? He is still living or no? According to that. Don't say... Oh, 1981. Died 1981? Yeah. Okay. Alright. Now, I want you to see what he's put together. The idea that the most real thing is what's underneath. The idea that in order for self to be a self, it must alienate in the face of the other. And then it becomes a self, which hates because now it's an object. And so that sort of activity of alienation is necessary and it surfaces in language because language is alienation saying that it's chasing the thing that it will never it will never be so being silent is not helping because it needs that this is a necessary alienation language concretely demonstrates the impossibility of completeness desire involves an ongoing movement Ongoing movement which destroys identity in favor of a sliding. Okay, this is good. Alright. So th this language continues oops, continues by the desire to obliterate presence. 
fascinating. Okay, so think about it this way. Instead of you wanting to find rest, rather it's realizing that rest is an impossibility, so your desire is driven to disrupt rest. And that's what language is. It's a sort of splintering of things, a consistent splintering of things, a continued disruption. But, simultaneously, language is the necessary objectification which exposes the gaps in objectification. The objectification has to happen for the gaps to be explored. Does that make sense? It's like a necessary negation, like a Hegelian negation. All right? So, that being, in, that being said, that's a picture of, well, where are we at on time? All right, we're going to get you. All right. Um, let's see. Let's um, Okay, then I'm going to skip my next bullet point and I'm going to go to the, go to the third one. Any questions? Anything that just sounds, all right, I kind of get that. That's interesting, but I'm not fully understanding what you mean by that. Well, the, um... The whole, don't write that down. Don't write that down. Okay. Go ahead. I'm listening. The whole, the whole, like, the whole, like, thing of the lack and, but there being nothing there. Yeah. And, and all that is, like, me and Matthew were talking about, yeah. that's how we feel. Desiring something like, that isn't there. Like, yeah. the cartoon reading really portrayed it well. But it was like the, I want something, but what? And the unconscious yeah. was saying, like, reaching towards lack and nothing. Yes. Like, yes. Yes. I think that's a lot, with a lot of the angst we were talking about. Yeah, it's very insightful. It's very insightful. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more about it's this interaction with Christianity as we move towards the end of the discussion so we can get a whole picture. All right. At a very early age, at a very early age, the unconscious manifests its desire for recognition and uh, otherness. There's a longing for objectification in others. And this happens in, in recognition of affection. Okay? Pause here. Remember, this is all how the undergirding structure of human life works. That's the idea here. This is the undergirding structure to all things. That's why it's structuralist. And it uses language as the means of movement, as the means of movement for the unconscious to realize its emptiness. And it recognizes it in the, in the recognition of affection. This would be, for example, uh, the child's actions which solicit responses for the objectification of itself. <laughs> um, this is where things get really interesting. This is like the child gives a bowel movement so that mom and dad will, oh, so proud of you. Look at that. Wow, good you've done. Boom. 
recognition of the self, objectification of the self, the movement of language. There it is. Child's action was responsible for objectification. All of these things, the unconscious posits the other, finds itself in that. It's a recognition that brings the child great pleasure in this, in this level. All right? It's demand for the recognition and love of other people. Events are apparently natural as the passing or holding back of stool, for example. This is something that Lacan says. It becomes episodes in the chronicle of a child's relationship with its parents, expressive of its compliance or rebellion. A hungry child may even refuse to eat food if it perceives that this food is offered less as a token of love than one of its parents' dissatisfaction or impatience. And so, the child, in some sense, plays games. For identification. Okay. Pause on this word. Identification. Do you remember what rationalistic philosopher depended on the law of identity? Descartes? Uh, yeah, you could say Descartes to some degree. But more so Leibniz. But you're right in the same area. What the law of identity for these guys was A is A. That's all it can be. Right? A is A. I am what I am. It is what it is. That it has an identity. The problem with the Lacan is this. A is not A. A is this like infinite movement away from what A can ever be. Never see it. In fact, there is no A. It's just sort of an arrow. Yeah, it's like you guys were saying, the movement from an emptiness to an emptiness. It can't get there. So it plays games for this identification. So it's a necessary process. The unconscious does this only to find out that it has nothing anyway. It needs to objectify itself to be a something to find out that that something is actually nothing. Weird. But interesting. Game theory... The game theory here involves precisely the attempt to formalize the possibilities available to individuals in situations where concern others and so forth. So think about this. It, it uses... Um, do you remember how Lady Strauss said... You remember how Lady Strauss said in the mythemes like there are certain things that one can use or the culture can use in order to erect its cultural position? and it's sort of mythology. And there's something sort of like this in the child here, in the unconscious, sort of using the available measures and kind of playing with different options in order to get recognition from the other. You guys understand what I mean when I say the other as a re in a really ambiguous way? In order for the self to get recognition from the other so that the self can all of a sudden know itself. And it uses games as sort of like a using possibilities and using options. Like he said, withholding stool, not eating food, doing this, not doing that. Playing with the TV when you're told not to over and over and over and over and over. Right? Is order to stimulate response from the other so that the self can be recognized. And remember, this is the deepest parts of the iceberg. This is not something that if you go to a parenting class at your local church, people are going to swallow. Uh, because this is not necessarily something that is visible. This is, this is a, a, a structuralist, undergirding sort of condition for, for all, all human action.
Now, we move on to the big other. This is where things get really interesting, and I'll try to I'll dance around this for a second, and we'll get into more of it. All right. The child's first exposure. Now, do you guys get the picture? The unconsciousness through the other finds the self, hates the fact that it's an object. The process goes on. Okay, good. And it goes on through language. Okay? Um, now, the first recognition of otherness in the child's life, this goes back to what Matthew was saying about six months, is who? Parents. Not just parents. Mom. Mom. Uh. Mom is the first place where the unconscious recognizes that it is not that. Think about this. The womb is the first place where the baby recognizes that I'm something different than this other thing. There's a me and there's a that. There's a self and there's an other. It's the first place where otherness becomes a reality for the child. And so, if the unconscious is trying to objectify itself in the face of the otherness to see itself, it's going to start out in the life of the mother. And this is deeply Freudian. It's going to start out by the desire for the infant to get the affection of the mother. Because the child's own desire is structured by its relationships with its first nurturer, it is thus the desire. Of the, it is thus the desire of the mother for Lacan that is the that is the decisive stake in what transpires with the Oedipus complex and its resolution. You guys have heard of the Oedipus complex, mm -hmm. okay? From classics studies, tribute to the literature department. So, in short. The child seeks to satisfy this otherness for its own structural recognition as a self by making itself an object for the other. The child seeking the favor of mom must make itself an object for her. Oh. Now, for Freud, sorry, this meant reproductive organs. To show mom the reproductive organs so that you'll get attention. That was the idea. Was that the child, in, in efforts to solicit mom's attention, thinks what mom wants is these reproductive organs. And so the child shows those reproductive organs to mom, but realizes or is astonished by the fact that mom doesn't want that. And the child blames that rejection on the father, because the father is the other other in some senses that's violating my opportunity to see myself in the recognition of the face of my mother other. My other, right? M dash other, right? So the child sees the father and wonders what the mother wants from the father and realizes that the mother wants from the father the big other. You're going, well, what is the big other? 
and the big other is a system of significa metaphysical signification that they both subordinate themselves to. So the child deludes themselves into believing in the big other and thus subjects themselves to metaphysical absolutes because of the pain of rejection. And thus obfuscates or destroys the desire for the lack because they think they're desiring the something that will let their mother see them. But it's really the lack still. Right, so the psychoanalytical process or therapy is to recognize that the big other is not there. Is to heal that. There is no big other. So who would say that everyone would need this, uh, this therapy? Yeah, most of the problems we experience are problems with that, our psychosis. If we're like obsessed and like OCD and, I can't, and I've got to have washed my hands every 15 minutes, you know, and I'm freaking out because I believe at some level I have gone through this process of warping in which I believe the big other is this fear of some sort of disease or something like that is controlling me or some reality that's not really there. Okay. I must sort of free the desire for emptiness and that's true liberty. Towards nothing. So you, you're right. You must like recognize that you do want nothingness and be part yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. Really and that you know what that is? That's double negation. That's what Zizek calls double negation. Because if I'm negating myself in order to find myself, I negate the fact that I originally negated myself and said I need to, didn't need didn't ever need to do that because there's nothing there anywhere. That's double negation. Boom. Freedom. Alright, peace be with you. Thank you.